relate to me as a high-paid ball player. Hope they relate to me as a lineman boss if I go to California. Since I was born, I dreamed of being a Budweiser Clydesdale. Only problem is, I was born a donkey. So all my life, I practiced the Clydesdale walk. And the Clydesdale pull. I even tried hair extensions on my lower legs. And then came my big interview. They looked me in the eye and said, What makes you think you can be a Clydesdale, son? And what was my answer? said something, right? I hit second that year in the lineup at a, at a certain point when Jim Fergosi took over halfway through the season. He moved me right into the number two slot, and Lyman hit third, and uh, he just really took care of me. You know, I, I was the only rookie on an all-veteran uh, major league team, and he paid attention to me. And he would talk to me, and in fact, he got to a point, you know, he, I don't know if people realize, he got off such a terrible start in 78, it was, that I think he tried to donate his first half the season money to charity, and Gene Autry wouldn't let him do that. Slow-mo, welcome to my dojo, there's other parts of so-so, I'm too like fro-yo, focus like a GoPro, ripping up this promo, check out the scoreboard, freaks, I'm throwing no notes, going, it's going, it's going, no, it's gone, your heart just stop, cause Jake got strong and mighty, undefeated, I mean it, pull up the pot, scroll it down and read it, written, produced, directed, and mixed, dung on your lips and Ozzy Smith back lips, pick a tip, any tip, get onto it, I got ridiculous pods without forcing it, you sit at home crying like a Girl, while I spread the gospel around the world, yo, the pods are written behind tracks that mixed in smooth with the groove to make ears want to listen. Add a little cut and a rhythm to back it up. Another show to my name, now watch me stack them up. You think another white rap back, but this ain't no act jack. My hobbies are rhyme, some people trying to be black with that. About time I come out, call the show BKP and let me turn it out, yo. Name Jake the Snake, born in 71. Gage, you know what time it is, I'm packing them guns. Your experience, I've been a witness to glory. And that's that's why I collect ball players and their stories. You heard? So, once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, half man, half podcast machine. 
back in the Captain Kirk chair. Shields down. Photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you freaks? What's Gucci? Welcome back into the BKP Dojo for yet another baseball bio in our always expanding catalog of archives. This is now show 107 and week two of the 2023 MLB offseason, and I'm going crazy, folks. This is the grassroots baseball show spanning the globe called Backwards K-Pod, where I dip in every Tuesday with like-minded seam heads and perform these deep surgical operations into the moments, characters, stadiums, as well as the pop culture references that have been stitched into the DNA fabric of our national pastime, baseball. My mission in life is to preach the gospel of baseball to the world. And this is my way of giving back to the sport that, folks, I love beyond compare. And I love them all, folks. College hoops, golf, tennis, the Ravens, college football, Wrexham Football Club. I even love sports entertainment. I love pro wrestling. But I always think of Sinead O'Connor when it comes to baseball. Nothing compares to you. Hello, everybody. It's your boy, Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. And even though there are no games on the schedule for baseball as we head into the week of Thanksgiving here in 2023, there are moves reverberating behind the scenes in the majors to keep an eye on. The Phillies re-signed right-handed starting pitcher Aaron Nola. At the moment of going to air, the Phils didn't quite announce the value of that deal, but ESPN has reported that it is a seven-year contract worth $172 million overall, which that feels fairly team-friendly to me, considering, you know, he's got top-shelf liquor abilities. And barring an unforeseen trade or something bizarre going down, the 30-year-old staff ace who was drafted by the club in the 2014 draft with the 11th pick and then promoted to the majors in barely a year. He's got a great chance to finish his career in the city of brotherly love, despite no free agent signings other than that having been made. And with the rival Braves looking like a suitor for his services, Nola had no desire to draw out the process. And resigning is really just a reflection of how much he loves that city and its rabid fan base. It is the biggest contract for a pitcher in franchise history. And it is the 11th largest deal in the team's payroll book currently. Uh, He joins Bryce Harper, Trey Turner, Zach Wheeler, JT Real Muto, and Nick Castellanos as players on the roster making nine-digit salaries. Now... There are other free agent wheels that should start churning soon, most notably Shohei Otani, as well as 25-year-old Japanese hurler Yoshinobu Yamato, who just posted out the Nippon Baseball League this past Monday and is looking forward to the bidding war that will precede his arrival to the States. And I feel like once Yamamoto is locked up, the rest of the market should loosen up. 
And it feels like there's going to be a frenzy this year, especially on the pitching side of things. Teams are now quietly tendering and releasing guys to make room on the roster for anticipated deals. And there's a lot of trade talks going around right now. And one name I'm hearing for sure is Jonathan India on the Cincinnati Reds, who I don't know. I think he's a sneaky, solid player for the right team. And with the rise of infielders like Noel V. Martin, uh, Noel V. Marte, Ellie De La Cruz, and McLean, India has become like this odd man out mathematically. And I think India is a talent. A, a team like the Mariners should be keyed in on. I also think, uh, look, Milwaukee may be in sell mode big time, which they do have some talent there that could help some teams on the cusp. So, all in all, while it may appear on the battlefront currently to be all quiet, I expect that to change here shortly as there are more teams in contention for a postseason berth than ever before. And there's a sense of urgency with many ball clubs in this offseason, which is good, considering we've had a few hot stove seasons uh, the last few years where the market was frozen in the spring training. Now, I am ready to get this week's show started. But before I do, I'd like to wish all of you and the American audience a happy and safe Thanksgiving holiday. And I put a question out on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. And I wanted to know, what are you most grateful for this year in baseball terms? And also, who would you consider the turkey of the year for embarrassing the sport of baseball? And I got a lot of great responses. I mean, they were all outstanding. I love the spirit of it. And at the end of the show, I'm going to announce who had the best uh, turkey of the year pick and the coolest thing to be grateful for at the end of the show. And we'll send you guys out a prize. So, I got a jam-packed show on tap for you Siemens this week. As I look to the west here at Terrapin Station, I see our beautiful, beautifully manicured field, and it's never looked better. The pitcher has finished his warm-up pitches. The catcher has thrown the ball down to second base. The umpire has called play ball. And the infield is throwing that pill around the diamond. If I can get you C-Meds to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye, let's clear the platform, load up our BKP time travel choo-choo. As I call all aboard, as this week... I will be setting our time and destination for September of 1971, Los Angeles, California, to witness the short life of the amazing Lyman Bostock. So, hurry, hurry, step right up, make yourself comfortable, take off your shoes, open your kimonos, I don't judge, and sit back as... We focus in on a true baseball tragedy that has been largely forgotten as the years melt away from that awful 1978 night in Gary, Indiana. And sadly, in many ways, I rarely hear his name much anymore. It's almost like his story 
has been forgotten. And that, and that's a shame because not only was Bostock top talent on the diamond, he was a kind, gentle soul with a blue-collar work ethic, as well as a veteran presence in the clubhouse that belied his four years of Major League experience. Those that remember him, remember him as this Ichiro-esque type of bad technician. No bullshit. This guy could stroke it. Hall of Fame manager Earl Weaver, after watching the sweet swinging left-hander uh, center fielder torture his Orioles pitching staff in 1976, he's singing in the boss choir of praises and he predicts that that kid is going to win five or six batting titles when he's done man is he special to watch and when he first burst onto the scene in 1975 he was almost immediately compared to his twins teammate Rod Carew which of course is an incredible honor but it also comes with pressure but in manager G. Mock's eyes, Bostock was second only to Carew as a hitter. And Mock was another American League manager predicting battle titles in his young Phenom's future. With Bostock hitting 323 and 336 in his first two full seasons in the majors, the proclamations of his greatness throughout the bigs, it hardly seemed like bluster. From 1976 to 1978, only Carew and Bucko's outfielder Dave Parker hit for a higher cumulative batting average. And he wasn't just one dimensional stick, he had ridiculous wheels, great instincts. And I'm not just sitting here blowing smoke up your ass, giving you the apocryphals. He was, without question, one of the finer defenders uh, in the American League during his era. I mean, like, gold glove caliber for sure, freaks. He was truly one of the more multifaceted talents going in the game during the late 70s. Lyman Wesley Bostock was born November 22nd, 1950 in Birmingham, Alabama. His parents were Lyman Sr. and Annie Bostock. But most of his young life in Birmingham, he was raised by his mother and grandma uh, Grandma, after his parents had separated, shortly after his birth. His uncle Tom Turner wistfully remembers how the family called him by his middle name, Wesley, and they playfully nicknamed him Redbone. He was a skinny rail who would run around all day with no shirt on, and he would get such a bad sunburn it was like he looked like he, he was under an x-ray examination and you could see his bones. His father, Lyman Sr., was a gifted first baseman for the Birmingham Black Barons and the Chicago American Giants and the Negro Leagues. And he played with and against many of the legends in the Negro Leagues. And he once raked down a 442 average with the Black Barons. And while baseball historians of the day of his era would continuously compare Lyman's game and his athletic profile to his father, Junior had little use for a man who walked out of his life 
for good at the age of two, and he failed to reappear physically, financially, or emotionally until he had made it to the twins. And while the elder Bostock had passed on his talents to Wesley genetically, there was no father-son tutelage between the two ever. Lyman once said to New York Times reporter Dave Anderson, My father may have taught Willie Mays how to play center field, but he never did the same for his own son. By 1947, many of the Bostock relatives began to move out of Birmingham, Alabama. So, part of the family migrated to the steel mills of Gary, Indiana, while others went west to California. And Andy takes her boy to Gary to stay with the family there for a while. But in 1958, Gary... uh, Andy takes her boy to Los Angeles with $7 in her pocket and a pair of Greyhouse bus tickets with a dream for a better life. And she quickly finds work as a technician at an L.A. hospital, and she would work there for the next 20 years. Miss Annie Pearl did whatever she had to do to provide the best resources for her son to not only succeed, but excel in all his endeavors and dreams. He enrolls to Manual Arts High School where he hits third, plays center field, and he's named first team All-Southern League as a senior. And at this point, he is a tremendous athlete and a solid baseball player. Hardly eye-popping abilities, but he was extremely determined and nobody wanted to be a baseball player more than 16-year-old Lyman Bostock. Upon his graduation from manual arts class of 1968, Bostock enrolls at San Fernando Valley State College, which is currently called Cal State University Northridge. And he locks eyes with Uveen Brooks during freshman orientation. And Bostock... You know, he's making his move. He kept moving towards her. You know, this stunning lady from Compton. And he's holding court, watching her, watching him. And finally, he made his way to her. And from that day on, the two smitten college kids were an inseparable unit. And though Lyman still aspired for his Major League Baseball dream... He was an 18-year-old kid facing a shit ton of pressure from the other black students on campus. They would always be in his ear saying things like, baseball is a white man's game. Baseball is an establishment sport. It's the man's game. In fact, the first two years of college, he has nothing to do with the sport. Instead, he immerses himself in a movement to have the school introduce an ethnic studies program. He lets his afro go out. He begins skipping class and protests of various causes. And he even gets arrested at a sit-in. Now, Uveen, who would eventually marry Lyman, said, looking back, yeah, he was just passionate about things. He was really into social issues of the time. But she wonders at what cost. You know, people were wrong to pressure him into not playing baseball. If you're meant to do something, 
and Lyman was meant to play baseball, then you shouldn't deny yourself. But we were young, capricious, and we wanted to change the world. Meanwhile, for two years, the baseball coach for San Fernando Valley has been trying in vain to recruit this kid for the team. Bob Heigert had scouted the prodigy at Manual Arts High School and was tortured knowing a kid with his abilities and baseball genetics would be content just sitting on the sideline during such an influential period of his life. He respected the kid's values and moral compass, respected that he stood for something, but he also knew that Bostock had more to give than just being like this college campus social justice warrior. And after two years of being politely declined, Coach Higer finally gets line of Bostock to play college baseball. And here we are, folks. Bending space ball, space and time. Coming out of that portal wormhole and straight onto the campus of San Fernando Valley University, October 1971, where Bostock has made quite the impression on the fans of the small California college. His first year of college ball is an unmitigated success. He has just led the Matadors to their first leg of back-to-back small college division national championships. Here's a second-team California Collegiate Athletic Association All-Star Honor in 1971 with his 344BA. And in 1972, he captures his first all-conference honors after battling a sizzling hot uh, 396 his senior year. And despite his success at Valley Hill, for the, the first two years he missed, it kind of distorted his draft value, and his name was finally called in the 26th round by the Minnesota Twins. He leaves school 15 credits short of a bachelor's degree, never to return. And he spends the next three and a half years molding and refining his game. And hitting everywhere he goes. His hitting acumen doesn't diminish one bit against professional competition. It only continues to develop by the 1974 season. Ballstock is the number one prospect in the Twins organization. He now stands six foot one, and he weighs 175 pounds, which is 79.38 kilograms. And he is destroying PCL pitching for Tacoma. He makes the league all-star team, and he finishes the year with his usual stellar batting average of 3.33. And entering the 1976 spring training camp, Twins management decided to give Bostock every opportunity to win the center field job on the big club. He not only won the position, but he made such an impression that he immediately begins drawing comparisons to teammate Rod Carell. He blisters the Grapefruit League pitching, batting 342 during the exhibition games, and he earns a ticket on the plane to fly north to Minnesota as the Twins starting center fielder and number two hitter behind Rod Carell. And he was equally as impressive defensively 
as he had the tendency to use the Willie Mays basket catch style, a practice he developed long ago when his mother bought him his first glove as an eight-year-old boy, but someone stole the glove the very next day. Now, his mom, she made a money, and she wasn't about to buy him a second glove in one week. Instead, a friend of hers at work gives her a replacement for Lyman. But unfortunately, it was a left-hander's mitt. And even though Lyman was a smooth-swinging left-hander with a stick in his hand, he threw with his right hand. In order to make the all-club work in the outfield, he began using the basket style of necessity, and it stuck with him throughout his time in the game. On April 8th, 1975, opening night for the Major League Baseball season, Bostock is prepared to face future Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Arthur Jenkins at the Texas Rangers. The legendary Jenkins is in his 13th season of his vaunted career that has seen him now win 20 or more games in seven of those campaigns. Before 28,787 fans at Arlington Stadium, the game kicks off with a matchup between two of the best in that era, Carew and Perky. Carew wins the battle. He leases a single to start the game and the season, which, I mean, of course he does, right? He's fucking Rod Carew. So, Bostock steps in the dish, thinking about his security journey to the show. Trying to calm his nerves to face off one of the, you know, one of the greatest pitchers ever. Inside of his body, he's a ball of nervous energy, but he calmly draws a walk in his first major league at bat. The Twins would send all nine batters in the lineup to the plate in the very first, as Minnesota ambushed the iconic right-handed pitcher for three runs in that opening frame. In the second, Carew again leads off the inning, this time flying out to right field for out number one. But Bostock rips a line draw single into right to start another rally. And Ferguson Jenkins, in an uncharacteristic short outing, is pulled during the second inning. And this is just the beginning. Day one of Bostock making a career out of abusing uh, Ferguson Jenkins there. Let the record show that in Lyman's career, he had 33 plate appearances versus Fergie. He reached base safely 14 times on eight singles, four doubles, and two walks for a batting average of 387 and an OBP at 424. In the debut, the Twins went on to win the game with Bostock going one for four. I'm sorry, three for six and scoring all three times he was on base. He finishes his rookie season with a 369, uh, with 369 ABs, a 282 average, and a 332 on base percentage. Now, he did miss a substantial time after sustaining an ankle injury that did require surgery, actually, for bone chips after making a diving catch in center field on a dying quail blooper by A shortstop Burt Campanaris. And that was only aggravated more when he went crashing into the outfield wall to make a grab in the later innings. And that was actually the second injury he suffered his rookie year. The first one coming in spring training when he fractured his finger. 
He hit 391 during his month of rehab in the minors following the ankle surgery. And he also missed a few games due to a minor thumb injury in that rookie season. After the season ended, Bostock heads out to the Venezuelan League for Aragua. Where once again, he's putting on a clinic in bat-to-ball proficiency. He's among the league leaders and batting when he re-injures the ankle, resulting in a premature end to his winter campaign. In 1976, despite some nagging injuries, including a pulled hammy, Bostock hits 3.23 with an OBP of 3.64 and an OPS of 7.94. His average was fourth best in the AL behind only George Brett, Hal McRae, and teammate Rod Carrill. Lyman also scored 75 runs, drove in 60, swiped 12 bags. He struck out only 37 times and 474 at-bats. Midway through the season, journalist Bob Fowler surmised that the Twins will have an excellent all-round center fielder for the next 10 years, well into the 1980s and possibly beyond. And this was an opinion highly shared in the 1976 baseball universe. After the 76 season, Bostock went to Mexican winter ball to improve his game, and he leads his team to a league title where he strokes two home runs in a championship series versus a team managed by Twins legend Tony Oliva. In 1977, the phrase rapidly emerging as one of the best all-round hitters around was used often when describing Bostock and his breakout 1977 season. He finished in the American League top seven in many categories, including second in batting average, 336, fourth in runs, 104, seventh in OBP, 389. During that season, he tied a lead record for putouts by a center fielder in a nine-inning game with 12, and he set a record for putouts in a doubleheader with 17. He and Rodney Klein at the top of that lineup, they were catalysts for Minnesota setting a franchise record for runs scored in a season. He had become a star in his third season. And he was also becoming the most sought-after free agent on the market between the 1977 and 78 campaigns. The new free agency system in baseball was quickly changing the landscape of the Major League Baseball universe, and it was turning ballplayers into instant millionaires, seemingly overnight. Now, after that 1976 season, Orioles right fielder Reggie Jackson signed a lucrative deal to play with the New York Yankees and George Steinbrenner. In 1977, reports suggest that Reggie was trying to help New York court Boston, Boston. Uh, into the vault and with the Bronx Bombers. Other reports suggest that the New York Mets were angling to trade team ace Jerry Kuzman in exchange for Bostock and a chance to sign him for the 1978 season. And back then, baseball had a free agent draft process that's been since abandoned by the league and the players' union. Bostock was selected by the maximum number of clubs, 13, and he was selected in the 8th round.
And during the season, Calvin Griffith was making the argument that financial considerations were preventing the Twins from possibly re-signing their rising star. The Twins, however, changed their tune in the offseason and ultimately offered Lyman a sum of money that he found acceptable enough, but it was in the manner in which the ball club handled the negotiations that rubbed Bostock wrong. Minnesota made a six-year, $2 million offer, but Lyman's contention was that the Twins should have just offered him that at the beginning of the year instead of hemming and hawing over finances and he did develop a disdain for the young, for the penny-pinching Griffith family. Now, the collaborative effort of Reggie Jackson and Steinbrenner to put Bostock, Bostock in Yankees pinstripes, even though the Bombers had reportedly offered Lyman a quarter of a million dollars more than the eventual deal, he rebuffed the offer and signs with California Angels. Padres owner and fast food magnate Ray Kroc. He offered the center fielder a McDonald's franchise as well as a hefty contract. But none of those deals felt right to him. He signed the largest contract in the game to return home and play for the California Angels. His last year playing in Minnesota, 1977, he made $20,000. And he was now inking an astounding five-year, $2.3 million deal. And I feel it's important to give you context here. So, $2.3 million in 1978 has the purchasing value of almost $11 million in the 2023 economy. And i tell you what, Priest. I think I should break right here as I consider this the first act in the Lyman Bostock story. When we get back, I'll drop Acts 2 and 3 on your lips. We'll talk about his short stint with the Angels and with his tragic ending that sees him murdered on the streets of Gary, Indiana. I will never charge you cements for the baseball contest, so please support the sponsors who support your grassroots baseball pod. And I'll get up with you freaks on the other side's break. Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stars. Executive producer of the Backwards K-Pod. 
for the last few months, I've been telling you about our sponsor, Laferose Hands, a powerful trifecta of products that eliminates fish, seafood, and bait odors, as well as the spices on your hands from steamed crabs and delicious crawfish oil. And now, this amazing grassroots company has added a buffalo wing hand cream. These are the only soaps and wipes on the planet specifically formulated to be used after eating spicy food or after a long day of fishing. Not only does the fishing hand cleaner get rid of bait pump, crawfish hand cleaner, clean hand cleaner, removes the spicy things around your mouth and on your hands. An ingenious invention by a retired Navy shipmate of Jake. So he and his family, folks. And one thing we do at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is take care of fans. Till the end of September, Laparose Hand Cleaner is offering all BKP listeners an amazing deal and hopes you give them a shot. It's a buy one, get one free deal, hot wing hand cleaner wipes, fishing hand cleaner wipes, or soap, seafood hand cleaner. Buy one, get one. The only advertised products on Backwoods Cave Pod that Jake and I believe in and use personally. After ripping up the golf course and watching football, there's nothing I love more than throwing some bait in the water and cracking a cold bud head. You can check out these amazing products by going to crawfishhandcleaner.com or you can call the home offices at 713-588-0290. To get that BOGO deal, please use the code SUMMER23. For your fishing vacation you're planning or the shellfish buffalo wing feast you're preparing, Get yourself this groundbreaking product to protect you from smelling spicy hands. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or call 713-588-0290. For the buy one, get one deal, use promo code SUMMER23. Fishing along the bank of your favorite river and listening to BKP sounds like a great idea. In fact, hey mom, where are my poles at? I'm John Fisher. Vostok, star outfielder for the California Angels, one of the highest paid players in baseball, shot to death late last night in Gary, Indiana. K-Pod Seamans, where we collect ball players and their stories. And before I break out for that commercial spot, we were talking about the rise of one of the true superstars in weight during the 1970s, Lyman Bostock. But real quick, before I dive back into that pool, I would be remiss if I didn't give a couple uh, BKP shout-outs this week. First of all, one of my dear friends, great listener and supporter, social media ninja, Derek Moeller. 
He runs a show with TikTok accounts. He, he passed out at his job the other day. And he's currently sitting in a Fairfax hospital somewhere. Recovering. Hopefully listening to this. My boy's a cancer survivor, but it doesn't look like it has come back. Which, thank God. Hey, brother. I love you. Keep fighting. Wishing you a speedy recovery. And... The truth is, I can't afford to have anyone in my audience die. It's going to screw my metrics, brah. So get your shit together, moles. Besides, you don't want to miss all the cool shit I got planned for 2024, do you? And freaks, that goes for all of you in the audience. No one is allowed to die, goddammit. I mean, Joe Rogan can afford to have death in his audience. I, I cannot. Not yet, anyway. So stay alive. And Derek knows a tongue in cheek. Get better, bro. And secondly, longtime listener and supporter, Michael Long Brown out of St. Louis, Missouri. Dude is up and joined the Army and is now doing his basic training at Fort Leonard Wood till mid April. And apparently, you can IM at boot camp now, which is something totally different than my experience at boot camp. And he's asking the listeners and members of the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. To send him all the good luck, wishes, and prayers to Ken. Because in his words, this shit fucking sucks. <laughs> and much like me, Michael is like this headstrong dude and loves to argue. So he's having a little trouble adjusting to his day being scheduled out and being told what to do. Just remember, brother, it's, it's all in the process of them ripping away. All the remnants of you being a mere citizen to molding you into a vital cog in the United States military machine. You're a smart, resourceful brother, and I expect you to excel. Make sure you share the show with all the seamen in your platoon, brother. Thank you for your service, and make us proud, bro. And I just want to get that out of the way. Two very strong supporters of the show. With some issues right now. What? With that being said, let's get back to this week's bio: the tragic tale of Lima Bostock, one of the bright young players on the precipice of greatness, heading into the 1980s. A talent that George Brett and Rod Carrell, as well as other peers in his era, predicted that he was on course for 3,000 hits in the Hall of Fame. He starts his career with the Twins, where he studies at the feet of his mentor, Rod Carrill. And like a sponge, he absorbs all he can from the Hall of Fame hitter. And he uses the Panamanium's philosophy in his approach. After three years of playing for Minnesota, the landscape of baseball is changing with the advent of free agency. And now, Lyman is ready to cash in during the 1977 offseason. After receiving offers from the Yankees, Padres, Twins, among others, Bostock took his talents home to California where Gene Autry, owner of the Halos, signs Bostock to a five-year deal and raises his salary from 20000 a year to close to five hundred k a year, which is about $2.4 million a year today in the 2023 economy. And that deal makes Lima Bostock the highest paid athlete in all of American team sports at the time. 
with his immense bat-to-ball skills, outstanding athleticism, superior glove work, and with him free to enjoy all that Kurt Flood had fought for, smashing the reserve clause, as well as freedom from the cheap Griffins who own the Twins, the Griffiths. Bostock heads to California for the glaring sunshine that is just waiting to shine on his bright future. But, the 1978 season starts off poorly for Lima Bostock and the Angels. So poorly, in fact, that the first month with the Halos, Lyman believes he has not earned the lucrative deal that the team and Mr. Autry wrote up for him. So, he walks into the country singer's office in May, and he offers back all the money he made in that first month. He offers to give it back to the club. Now, Gene Autry and GM Buzz Bavese, they're at a loss for words. Gene turns to Bavese and he says, Buzz, were we going to give this young man more money if he hit a home run every game during the month of April? No, we were not, sir. Bavese shoots back. What if he bats 400 at the end of the year and wins an MVP? We going to give him more money in that case? Not a penny, sir, Buzz replies. Still staring at the pro ball player, offering money back to the team. I mean, who is this guy? But Mr. Autry, it's a lot of money, and I didn't earn any of it. Bostic pleads back to the owner. And Gene looks his free agent acquisition in the eye and says, Lyman, it's only a month. The last thing I'm worried about with this team is you getting your hits. I have total faith in you and your abilities. It's why I pursued you and paid you. You're an exemplary person and I admire this proposal. It's how I know I made the right choice signing you. Just go out there and have fun. Keep pushing. It'll all work out. Besides, like Buzz said, we wouldn't be offering you more money if you came out like Willie Mays dominating in every phase of the game. So Lyman leaves the office buoyed by Mr. Archie's faith in him, but it still bothered him to be making this obscene amount of money without him holding up his end of the bargain. After the owner's refusal to dock his pay, Bostock takes the almost 50 grand he made that first month and donated nearly 100% of it to baseball and the inner city charities. And he also put money into rebuilding his mother's church and bought baseball equipment for underprivileged use in Los Angeles. He would finish up the month of April hitting 147. By far the worst slump of his pro career. Probably his worst slump ever. He picks up the pace in May, but by the end of the month, the average sits at 209. And eventually, June rolls around in that 1978 season, and the bat starts to glow. And he finishes out the remainder of his season batting over 300 during the months of June, July, August, and three quarters of the way through September. By the very last baseball game of his life, the guy that was batting a lowly 147 at the end of the April, the stand-up dude who offered to give money back to the franchise for services not rendered, he finished the season with a 296 average and a 364 OBP. 
And that capped a three-year stretch during which Bostock posted the third highest BA in the game, behind only Ron Carew and Dave Parker. And that put him ahead of elite hitters of that era, such as George Brett, Pete Rose, Bill Madlock. The three of those dudes, they combined for 10 batting titles in their career of offensive belligerence. And the body of work on his resume for that three-year span is certainly impressive in and of itself. But I want you to consider, he is just 27 years old and he has more ceiling to his game. Hall of Fame legend, pitcher, teammate, Nolan Ryan, called him one of the few pure natural hitters in the American League. Tragically, all that promise and hope for the future is gone in the blink of an eye. On September 23, 1978, in the waiting days of his fourth season in the majors, the Angels dropped the last game he would ever play 5-4 to to the Chicago White Sox out at Old Comiskey Park. He had doubled in the game, but he also made the last out in the loss. Now, another game of the books, but with the loss, with the last out of the game weighing on him, Lyman is just glad to be close to his family in Gary, Indiana. He loved coming into Chicago to play. After games, he would drive the 40 minutes or so down the road, see his family, get some home cooking and family laughs. Just what the weary baseball soul needs during a 162-game season. He especially loved taking teammates to his home away from Cali. And he asked rookie third baseman Cody Lansford if he would like to join him. And Lansford is the voice you heard at the the top of the, the program. Where he talks about how, you know, he was a rookie... And the only two people that paid attention to him on the Angels was Joe Rudy and Lyman Bostock. And Lansford loved Bostock. In many ways, he was the equivalent of young Lyman following Carew around as a rookie absorbing his lessons by their outgoing uh, mentors. Carney politely declines, thinking it's better he stay in the Windy City and get some rest. He then approaches his best friend on the team, Kenny Landrell, and inquires about his interest in joining him. And Kenny's like, hell yeah, I'll just go to the hotel room, change, and then I'll meet you in the lobby. Well, unfortunately, Kenny took too long getting ready. And when Lyman is looking for him in the lobby, no one has seen him. And Bostock figures he must have changed his mind. So he gets in his car to make the trip by himself. When it gets to Gary, it's home. The Bostocks are all together. They're laughing, sharing the love, throwing down on the food. Having the time of their lives. Lyman looked great. He was confident. But he did regret that Uveen had been unable to fly out from L.A. to hang with the Bostock unit. He missed his wife daily. And her presence would have made the trip perfect. As nightfall depends, uh, descends upon the city of Gary. Lyman asks his uncle Ed Tucker if he wouldn't mind, I'm sorry, Ed Turner, 
and we wouldn't mind accompanying him to see an old friend of the family, Joan Hawkins. And sure, like the papa said, he didn't say hello before he made his way back to the shop. And Uncle Ed said, sure. They both hop into Turner's whip. They make the short drive to her apartment. When they get there, they both go in and exchange pleasantries. And Joan is so happy to see her old friend. And they begin talking about really nothing in particular. Basically, it's just an exchange of the moment. The visit isn't long. Maybe ten minutes at the most. Lyman hugged his childhood friend and told her he had to go. And before he leaves, Joan asked Lyman and his uncle if they could give her friend Barbara Smith a short ride a few blocks away. She got some crazy shit going on in her life right now, and I'm looking after her. Sure, says Lyman. Is that cool with you, Uncle Ed? No problem. I can do that for you. Come on. I'll give you a ride. They walk out of the house laughing and joking. And Joan watches as her childhood chums climb into the car. They can see Joan by her door with the living room light illuminating behind her. They wave goodbye. But little did they know they were... That while they were watching Joan turn around and walk back into her apartment, a much more evil entity was sitting in a sedan a half block up, watching them pull away in the car. As Uncle Ed pulls off, Lyman and Barbara are in the back seat, and Uncle Ed pays no attention to the car lights that have just come on, and the car that is following them from some distance behind at around 10.40, the car pulls up to Uncle Ed at an intersection, and the driver, Leonard Smith, begins yelling at the occupants inside of Uncle Ed's car. Barbara in the back seat says, oh, that's my stupid-ass husband. I just got a restraining order for him four days ago. I'm sorry, y'all. Let's just get away from him. And Uncle Ed agrees, so he proceeds to speed up to avoid the temperamental driver. But he gets caught at the red light at the intersection of Jackson and Fifth Street. And it was there that Leonard Smith went into an unwarranted jealous rage. Believing Lyman was banging his wife, he fires a shotgun in the back of the car. And then speeds off into the city. And Uncle Ed said it sounded like a tire popped or maybe it was the backfire of a car around him. But... He wasn't sure what happened at first. Then Barbara sitting in the back seat, she says, Ed, your nephew just got shot in the face. I think he's dead. When Uncle Ed turns around to look in the back seat, he is stunned to see glass everywhere and his nephew, whom he loved and admired so much, slumped over in a seat. Literally missing the whole left side of his face. Uncle Ed takes off to St. Mary's Medical Center where doctors worked on him for three hours of futility before he was pronounced dead at 1.30 a.m. And word begins to get back to the angels at the hotel with Dom Baylor learning of the shooting first on the team from his wife calling from California. 
GM Buzz Bavese was in contact with the hospital, and after the call, he pleaded with Baylor to tell his teammates not to go to the hospital. It's not going to end well. So, the burden fell on Baylor to pass the word along to the team, and hardened baseball men just broke down upon hearing the awful news. Baylor and Joe Rudy literally sat outside their hotel rooms in the hall in the hallway, talking talking to one another through the tears for the rest of the night. They were unable to sleep, and they still had a game to play later that afternoon. And I have a clip here of what was going through rookie Cardin Lansford's mind when the awful news broke. His his place in Geary. He wanted to meet me to meet his family and come to dinner that night. And you know, I was just a rookie, and, and I really didn't want you know. I just wanted to get my rest and, and finish the season. So I you know I turned him down or whatever. And that night, Rance Mullenix and I were rooming together at the hotel, and Kenny Landro and Danny Goodwin came in. We had just turned off our TV, just ready to fall asleep. I think our eyes had just closed, and we heard those guys walking in. They were in the room right next to us. They said something about. We just heard him say something about they don't think he's going to make it. But we didn't pay any attention because we didn't know what was going on. And probably about 30 seconds later, uh, our phone rang, and it was Rance Mullenick's wife in Southern California saying that Lyman had been shot, and they didn't think he was going to make it. And manager Jim Pergosi returned to the hotel around midnight, and he was about to admonish Kenny Langell and Danny Goodwin for hanging out in the lobby so late. But then he saw their faces of pure, unadulterated grief and emotional pain. And he sat their skipper down and gave him the awful news. The next day, the weary angels, I mean, God bless them. They show up to Comiskey Park to play the final game of the series versus the White Sox. And they are greeted by a swarm of reporters in the locker room. An agitated Baylor chases people away from his locker, which had already been emptied. Only his kit remained behind in a duffel bag. Manager Fergosi looked like he had aged overnight. He canceled batting practice. Max Packin, the clown prince of baseball, was scheduled to perform before the game. He canceled his act out of respect for Lyman. Pergosi keeping his composure. He had a meeting with the club and he told the boys that they're professionals and they still had to go out there and compete. And freaks, this just wouldn't happen today. The fact that they played a game while fragments of Bostock's face was in the backseat of a car, it absolutely amazed me in the research. When Carly Lansford reads the lineup card in the clubhouse, he notices his name is penciled in at his mentor's usual two-spot in the lineup. And it had a true impact on him. Here, in his voice and his own words, this is what he was feeling going into the game. Lo and behold, we get to the park the next day and Pergosi hits me third. And I just immediately think, how am I going to do this? I can't replace this guy. This is Lyman Bostock. Are you kidding me? 
and I, and I believe it was like Francisco Barrio. Was that, was that, I think he was pitching that day, and my first time up for whatever reason, you know, God bless me, and I hit a home run. And I just remember trotting to first base and kind of just pointing to the sky. It's like, you know, that's, that's for you, Lyman. And I just kind of broke down. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that whole thing. It's, I still think about him a lot. He's such a he's such a great guy. He's such a great guy in the clubhouse, and, and him and, and really Joe Rudy were really the two guys that, that paid attention to me at all my rookie year, you know, on that team. So um, I still miss him tremendously. The things that we used to talk about, and just what a great player he was. He's, I thought an underrated outfielder as well as such a great hitter. And my bad. He that was his. Uh, he was batting in his number three hole. I said number two, I believe. Don Baylor said he ran sprints with Joe Rudy and Bobby Grinch before the game. He didn't even want to play the game, but he felt like he needed to play the game. In his first at-bat, he hits a blast into the upper deck left field for his 33rd home run of the season. And after running the bases, Baylor retreats into the hallway of the dugout to gather his thoughts. When Angels clubhouse manager Mickey Shishido places his hand on his shoulder and said, you did that for Lyman. And Don agreed with him, but deep down, it didn't feel like he had done enough. The Halos would trounce the Chai Sox 7-3 on the strength of Lansford and Baylor's dogs and seven innings of pitching behind Nolan Ryan. He had like six strikeouts. After the game, the Angels flew home. They had an off day. Baylor went to the airport to meet Yuvine, where she flew when she flew in with uh, Lyman's coffin, and the funeral services were held on September 28, 1978, at Vermont Square United Methodist Church in L.A. Bobby Gritz spoke of Lyman's outgoing personality. We called him Jibba Jabba because he was always talking and cutting up. Everyone loved him. He was the eternal optimist. Always looking on the bright side. And manager Jim Fergosi was supposed to deliver the eulogy, but he could not find the words to illustrate his grief. Falling apart mid-speech before asking Ken Brett to finish the eulogy. And a totally unprepared and unscripted Brett picked up the mantle. Been deprived of a great player. A great friend. And an unmatched spirit has left the Angel Clubhouse. Bostock was buried at Inglewood Cemetery in Los Angeles. The Angels regrouped and won five of their last seven games, staving off mathematical elimination in the AL West until the last series of the season. And they would win the NL, uh, AL West in 1979. Police arrested Leonard Smith seven hours after the shooting and was charged with first degree murder and what should have been an open and shut fucking case. But his attorneys, uh, Leonard Smith's attorneys argued that Leonard was temporarily insane when he committed the crime. He had no conception of the chaos he had left in his violent wake. He had no idea who Bostock was, never watched baseball, 
and basically killed him over a woman that Bostock literally knew for 30 minutes of his fucking life. And all he kept saying was that it's that damn bitch's fault. Never taking responsibility for his actions. In July of 1979, a Lake County, Indiana jury declared the case deadlocked and Judge James Kimbrough declared a mistrial. The case was tried again in November and Smith's lawyers convinced the jury to acquit Smith, finding him innocent by reason of insanity. Leonard was ordered to undergo psychiatric care in the Indiana State Mental Hospital in Logansport. He spends less than a year there, having been found not insane by the doctors there, they were forced to release him in the summer of 1980, during what should have been Lyman's sixth year in the majors. And full disclosure, that pisses me off, freaks. Not only was his shit stain given his freedom, but he literally lived six blocks away from the intersection where he murdered Bostock until his death at the age of 84 in 2010. The only silver lining about this horrific and tragic affair? Well, it changed the laws in the state of Indiana, and thank fucking God, those uh, found mentally impaired can now be found guilty and imprisoned, which, you know, duh. Nevertheless, two years after murdering Bostock, robbing him of a blossoming career and a love and a life with Yvine, this piece of trash lived the rest of his life as a free man. And you have to remember, there was no internet, no 24-hour news cycle, no social media platforms, no tabloid news shows on TV back then. The first Major League Baseball player to be murdered during the season would be huge news today. But quickly and quietly, the murder seemed to be forgotten real quick. Five days after Bostock's death, Pope John Paul died of a heart attack. The 33 days of Pontiff replacement news pushed the Bostock story off the radar. A year later, Thurman Munson dies in that horrific plane crash we covered here at BKP. And Lyman becomes a virtual afterthought, reduced to a mere stat number in the rising rate of murders in Gary, Indiana. People just moved on to the point of forgetting all about him. But look, I don't forget... And I'm grateful to have this platform to recount his story for future generations of seam heads. Lyman was different. He was a star in weight. And it still makes me angry to this day. What a goddamn unnecessary waste. At BKP, we stand in solidarity with the Bostock family. I will make sure this story is protected for posterity. And I will... I'm just so proud to have this story out. You know, I, I think more people should know who Bostock was. I think that's where I'm going to call the show. We can now put a backwards K in the scorebook next to Bostock's name as his story is a history that needs to be preserved, in my opinion. Before I tip on out, Rachel, let's take a look 
at those, oh, so lovely, Lyman Bostock, Bostock stats. Lyman Wesley Bostock, number 10 in your press guide, but number one in your heart. He batted left, threw right, played center field. Born November 22nd, 1950, so a day after this show drops into the baseball universe, it will be the celebration of his 74th birthday posthumously. Died September 24th, 1978 in Gary, Indiana, and he's buried at the Inglewood Park Cemetery in Inglewood, California. Went to San Fernando Valley College, was drafted by the Minnesota Twins in the 26th round of the 1972 June Amateur Baseball Draft. He becomes the 13,603rd member of the Major League Baseball Fraternity when he makes his big league debut on April 8, 1975 at the age of 24. He goes 3 for 6, scores 3 runs versus Ferguson Jenkins and the Texas Rangers. The boys on the Angels, they nicknamed him Abdul Jibba Jabba because of his propensity to talk it up. A four-year baseball career with the Minnesota Twins and California Angels. 13.1 career war. 2,214 plate appearances. 305 runs scored. 624 hits. 102 doubles. 30 triples. 23 home runs. 250 ribs. 45 stolen bases, 28 times caught, 174 strikeouts, 171 walks, most impressive, 855 career total bases, a career slash of 311, 365, 379, a 740 OPS, and a 123 OPS plus. And because his career was short, I want to give a stats perspective. This is his four-season, 162-game average. For every 162 games played, he averaged 92 runs, 192 hits, 31 doubles, 9 triples, 7 home runs, 77 RBIs, 14 stolen bases, 53 walks, 54 strikeouts. And again, wow. As well as 263 total bases for every 162 games played. Lyman frickin' Bostock Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamen of all ages, this is the story of Lyman Wesley Bostock. And priests, we've done some tragedy here. Clemente... Monson, the Earthquake series, any Wakeus. But I'm going to be honest, this one took a lot out of me. I'm passionate. I care about these stories as I craft them and I gather the info. And I just feel like this story has slipped through the cracks through the years. And it really wasn't that long ago. I kept thinking, what a fucking waste. We were definitely robbed of something special. By a literal maniac who was never truly held accountable for his crimes. And 
I truly felt like my brain wanted to vomit while developing this show. Is that possible? But I'm glad I did it. I'm glad you stopped by to check it out. And I promise, Reeks, I'll be in the cage first thing in the morning trying to be better for you seam heads next week. I'm not going to give you the whole business minutiae pitch this week. Share with your seam head buddies. Leave me a rate. Blah, blah, blah. I need to get you freaks back to your loved ones waiting patiently for you back at Terrapin Station. And before I make like a news and buggy, I did have a little contest I put out in the Facebook group at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network page. And I wanted to know what you guys were grateful for in the baseball context of 2023. And who was baseball's turkey of the year? The absolute embarrassment of a human being. So let's get turkey of the year out of the way because Michael Dietz of Peoria, Illinois set the standard right off the bat with Wander Franco of the Tampa Rays who appears to have a proclivity for underage girls over, you know, living the dream of being a multi-millionaire Major League Baseball star banging grown-up models. So, Wanda Franco is without question a total embarrassment to the game. Humanity. Good luck with your life moving forward. You blew it, kid. Now, my staff of Omar, Gabby, Derek Muller, and the Pod Squads, they unanimously voted Brian Belzina out of Dewey, Arizona, Dewey, Arizona, Dewey, Arizona, as the winner when he wrote, I'm thankful for the state of the game. There's a ton of young talent that has arrived and even more in the way. The game seems to be in good hands. I'm also grateful for the lifelong connection, lifelong connections and friendships the game has given to me. And here, here, good job, Bells. Way to capture the spirit I was looking for. Couldn't have said it better myself. So let me see what I have in the prize department, and I'll be sure to send that out to you guys. Thank you to all who answered. All the answers were great. And like I tell you guys all the time, I'm proud to have this audience, a platform. I'm doing what I love most in the world, and that's opine the scenes with you guys, my family. As I spend... Uh, ben, baseball space and time to get you back to your families and your Thanksgiving celebration. I see the Lyman Bostock story getting smaller and smaller in my rear views. So I turn my attention to our never say die baseball hydra. I pull out my katana sword from under my kimono and I chop. I said I chop. <laughs> The head of that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, I'm coming through with the life and times of one of the greatest catchers to ever squat behind a dish. Ladies and gentlemen, next week I bring you the journey of Avon Rodriguez. And I can't wait to get that together for you freaks. Happy Thanksgiving, you colonial twats. Drink Budweiser. Drink a lot of it. Just do it responsibly. Stay safe. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch with their nose in the phone and iPads, they're not listening to BKP. They're just looking bored AF. By all means, take the kiddos outside and play a game of catch. 
Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillebrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year. You go to hell, Andy Pettit. You southpaw demon seed. Do me a favor. Keep Derek and Michael in your prayers. Congrats to DC and Bells. Have a safe holiday of love and cheer. And I'll see you freaks next week with the Punch Bio of Vaughn Rodriguez. I'm out, y'all. Throwing up my Gunner Hendersons to all you C-Men's in the baseball universe. That's my deuces, baby. Happy Thanksgiving. Peace.